The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. I don't know about you, but there have been days in the last couple of months when you might have actually heard my heart beating back in Ohio all the way here to San Francisco. It's been pounding loudly in anguish. The now sadly predictable shootings of children in school or any number of people in stores, houses of worship playing in their yard or depositing a check in the bank are simply without end. And the permission to buy assault weapons and other guns without any limits or license is becoming more universal state by state. The direction our National Supreme Court has taken has incited my fury many times recently and sparked an anguished compassion for all those whose lives are going to be upended by their decisions and plain destroyed in some cases. The legislative malice in states like Florida and Tennessee toward drag performers and my beloved trans siblings is not even surprising anymore. It's happening so often. Sadly, not to expect more of the same to come is to be naive. One senator wants to make same-sex sexuality a crime again. Others suggest that Brown versus the Board of Education should be repealed without the slightest sense of shame, segregating our schools once again. The unsheltered on our streets covered themselves with sleeping bags and cardboard boxes and doorways, or greet me at the freeway exit in this city and also in Columbus. Many people like me, or you, have roofs over our head and are probably grateful for that. But I know also many people who tell me that the people on the streets are nuisances and embarrassments and not particularly people whose lives are as important to them as yours and mine are to us. The vitriol projection and outright lies among elected leaders shocks even me, who at age 73 once foolishly thought I had grown so old I wasn't capable of being shocked anymore. Can you hear my heart leaping inside me, breaking, skipping beats, crying out? I can hear many other hearts beating in this room without much difficulty, even without my hearing aids. Shamborska's remarkable poem, however, begins to offer my heart 
some fresh and necessary insight. As she almost always does in her poetry, Szymborska names many situations in building up to her last startling sentence. In her poem, she's talking about circumstances, that is, things beyond our control. You were in luck. You were not in luck. You escaped. Others didn't. Her words, of course, suggest the horror of the Nazi Shoah, the murder of the Jews, the Roma people, queer people, communists, and even some uncooperative Unitarians like Norbert Chapek. I have in my life talked to more than one person with tattoos on their arm, including here in this congregation, who escaped because of dumb luck. Of course, most didn't. Circumstances, circumstances. Those born black in a racist nation built on the labor of the enslaved grew up with mostly different circumstances than I did in a little bungalow in Detroit where I grew up. In 1976, I was a chaplain at the hospital in San Francisco, the uh, University of California Medical Center, where I met a 15-year-old boy who looked about eight, actually, because he was born with cancer. He didn't get it, he was born with it. I was not born with cancer. Circumstances. Some are born in households of violence and abuse, others are not, and experience only love and kindness from both parents or one parent. As a minister of 40 years, I have met those who have seen war firsthand and others who think that wars are just fought far away and don't intrude on their lives. I've met indigenous people from this continent who have lived in poverty all their lives and others who grew up in homes that would be great covers for House Beautiful. Circumstances. My beloved friend Christian was a heroin user when I met him in Columbus. He would disappear for weeks at a time. But when I first met him, I intuited immediately from our conversation that he was one of the most brilliant people I had ever met. And I say this once having met Stephen Hawking. I would text him when he was out on the streets shooting up. I would just say, I'm here, I love you. Often no response for a month. Then he might come back out for a little bit, but believe me, my heart was beating hard the whole time. Is he alive today? But guess what? After almost dying of an overdose, he received remarkable treatment for his situation, addressing all of his childhood abuse. And his mother had plenty of money to help make that happen. 
Eventually, he graduated magna cum laude from Ohio State and is now living in New York City, attending grad school at New York University and publishing short stories. Circumstances. My friend Robert's circumstances were different, and his beautiful, struggling self finally died of an overdose at age 25, never once letting his friends or family know how he was crushed by his addiction. You were in luck. There was a forest. You were in luck. There were no trees. You were in luck. You had supportive friends and family. You had no luck, and you didn't know how to tell anybody, including yourself, what you were facing, and you died at age 25. Since I am preaching the ordination sermon for Meg McGuire this afternoon, I've been reflecting on my work as a minister over the years as a human being who's trying to live a deeper, not shallower life, a life with roots in care with and in struggle against the injustices of the world. I'm trying to work, in other words, on ways to lessen the place of luck and circumstances in people's lives, which try to limit and define our lives, working to end systemic destitution, the great unsheltered populations in the streets of the so-called wealthiest nation on earth, working to get addicts real help, not scorn, working to get medical care for a 10-year-old who was raped in Ohio, needed an abortion in a state that just banned them all, or health care of any kind that doesn't cost a whole lifetime savings. Working to make sure our children, black children especially, are not killed in school or church, or even on the street, like the weaponless Sinsei Reed in my city of Columbus, killed at age 13 without a weapon in his hand by a man who just drove past him in a truck, got out of the truck, shot him, and then got back into his truck and drove away. I know, circumstances. There's all kinds of circumstances. <clears throat> People are born with curly hair, red hair, black hair. People are born with all kinds of biological things, including that poor guy in the hospital who was born with cancer. No one chooses the biological circumstances. We just arrive with them. But I see my work as a human being and as a minister to lessen the impact of the social circumstances that have so shredded this nation. Racialization, paying women less than men for the same exact work the lack of health care or education affordable. It's the circumstances of systems created by human beings that I'm now talking about. So now let me read another poem by the great late black gay poet Melvin Dixon, who died of AIDS and was a professor of literature at Queens College. The poem gives me the title of this sermon, Heartbeats, and it's posthumous, published three years after his death in 1992. 
Work out, 10 laps, chins up, look good, steam room, dress warm, call home, fresh air, eat right, rest well, sweetheart, safe sex, sore throat, long flu, hard nodes, beware, test blood, count cells, Reds thin, whites low, dress warm, eat well, short breath, fatigue, night sweats, dry cough, loose stools, weight loss. Get mad, fight back, call home, rest well. Don't cry, take charge, no sex, eat right, call home. Talk slow, chin up, no air, arms wide, nodes hard, cough dry, hold on, mouth wide, drink this, breathe in, breathe out, no air, breathe in, breathe in, no air, black out, white rooms, head hot, feet cold. No work, eat right, cat scan, chin up, breathe in, breathe out. No air, no air, thin blood, sore lungs, mouth dry, mind gone. Six months, three weeks, can't eat, no air. Today, tonight, it waits for me, sweetheart. Don't stop, breathe in, breathe out. I lived here in California during the AIDS years, especially the early 80s, the late 1990s, in the Bay Area here, lived in Oakland. I buried my best friends over the years, John Zimorowski, Alex Stevens, Dallas Williams, Mark DeWolf, who interned at this congregation, Frank Siskowski, Juan Carlos Ortegan, and the amazing Stephen Missler. As a minister in Hayward, I also buried members of the congregation there too. But by the time a real, by the time a real medical response to AIDS showed up, I had conducted over 25 memorial services for people who were not members of my congregation. These were people I deeply loved. I sometimes wonder how I survived those days, such grief, to live unto this sermon today. Oh yeah, circumstances, I didn't suffer from HIV, they did. I was in luck, I dodged it somehow. The newspapers were filled with invective and blame, however. You deserve it. You all need to be quarantined in camps so we don't get it. You are evil incarnate. You will burn in hell forever and ever. On the way to bury people I loved, I often saw those graffiti scribbled on the walls even here in San Francisco. Dixon's mighty poem uses the rhythm of a human heartbeat to tell his own story. It's the story of all my friends, too, friends 
dying, asking, three weeks, six months, today, tonight? The government at the time was doing nothing, not even mentioning it. Folks wore masks and gloves in hospitals long before COVID, as if AIDS was contractible by simply breathing, casual contact, a hug. Clergy refused to do funerals for them. How did we get through it? Dixon's poem, like Shamborska's, offers my heart a second application of insightful balm. In sum, our heartbeats in those days pounded to the same rhythm as our dying friends' heartbeats. First, the lesbian community helped change our beds, cooked food for us. Ministers like me did the memorials other clergy would not do. We not only led memorials, but we taught others how to do them since there were so many that I couldn't do them all by myself. Communities of visitors were organized for us. Project Open Hand fed us. The Unitarian Universalist and Metropolitan Community Churches and rabbis at progressive synagogues ministered to us. Allies worked relentlessly to get things changed in hospitals and in the political arena, especially local ones. We reached out to each other even if we had never met with abundant care and real love. We worked hard to change the circumstances so everyone could say, we're in luck. People are there for us. Oh, we were exhausted, yes, but we knew nobody else was gonna do what we were doing. And oh yes, we voted and we marched and we wrote letters in an effort to change society as a whole, but Mostly, we loved each other with our actions as well as our feelings. Artists and musicians worked with us singing laments and challenges. Performance artists like Keith Hennessy enlarged our hearts and calmed our heartbeats so that we knew that our hearts weren't the only ones beating, but beating with others. One composer set some of my words to music for an AIDS song cycle to put music itself at the service of healing, as did many others. I and my friends sat up all night in hospitals with our dying friends and then went to work the next day. Person-to-person -person service, no expectations from above, from Congress, from presidents or governors. Today, even though AIDS is not the threat it once was, my younger friends are continuing this practice of mutual service feeding each other when they are too tight in their income to eat well, helping each other pay off school debts or medical debts if they can. It's wondrous to me. I see it all the time. Call it a kind of mutual voluntary socialism if you want, or just call it love in action. But I see it all the time now and note that something is changing and how we can be there for each other now, like we were. Side by side, face to face, we did it. We lost many, but not all. And I use the plural, we, our, us, and all I said 
about AIDS today and HIV, even though I didn't have it, because I have to imagine that that's what made us being able to do it by seeing ourselves as a we. We recognized each other as family, broke and sharing together at the great table of life and death, the bread of love, which multiplies when broken in love, not crumbles, as in the story this morning by Laura. And as it did in my generation, such actions begin to tear down systems of circumstance created by human beings who want power over instead of friendship and love with and relationship. Love's purpose, I say, is to change the circumstances for the better, for everyone, universally, no exceptions. If you surround yourself with the right people, said Sam this morning, and take some risks, everything will seem inevitable. Novelist Thomas Mann, Nobel laureate, was a member of our congregation in Los Angeles. And he once wrote in his novel, Magic Mountain, love is our sympathy with all organic life. Sympathy, a Greek word which means to feel with, sympathos, feelings of others for all who are in harsh circumstances, not of their own making. It's a good, simple definition for religious life for me that helps me through times like this. No one can pass a law to command us not to love or feel or hear or identify with the heartbeats of others. So listen now. Can you feel how your heart beats in my chest? Thanks for listening. In high school, my path was set. I knew what classes I would take, what clubs I would participate in. I didn't really have to make any decisions. In college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I briefly tried pre-med, philosophy, political science. I knew I wanted to make the world a better place, but I didn't really know how. When I discovered that I enjoyed computer science, I had no idea how to reconcile that with my values. There weren't many examples of technology being used for public service or civil society. No one that I knew had any connection to a tech nonprofit. There wasn't a standard path for people like me. I might have given up on tech for good entirely before getting started if I didn't find a couple of opportunities right away. We had guest speakers give talks on campus, and one speaker was at a tech nonprofit. And since, as far as I knew, that was the only singular tech nonprofit in the whole world, I decided to try to get an internship there. And there was a student group that put on a 24-hour dance fundraiser for AIDS, 
and somebody had the great idea to get the computer science students programming to help out the nonprofit with our website while the dancers were fundraising. Uh, so I eventually joined the leadership team for that event. One event and one internship were great, and it was necessary for me to get started, but that alone wasn't enough to keep me on that path. I took some classes on social entrepreneurship, basically business school for nonprofits, and I decided to start my own Tech for Good organization that connected computer science students with nonprofits, basically helping other students who are interested in Tech for Good find their own path. One of the best parts of doing that was that it gave me an excuse to talk to folks. Every time I would attend a talk by some nonprofit leader, I would walk up afterwards and sheepishly ask them how a computer science student might help their organization. But it, it was okay for me to impose myself on them because it wasn't really about me, you see. You see, I, I had this friend who, who doesn't really know what he wants to do, and he was wondering about Tech for Good. I had an organization. I was there to help others. And if that helped me figure out what I wanted to do, then so be it. It was still hard to continue on, though. After a frustrating internship at a disorganized nonprofit and some challenges with the organization that I started, I felt like I just wanted something stable, even if that did mean compromising on my values. And at that point, it was mostly just momentum, just luck that kept me doing something good. But over time, I started to build up this identity as a tech for good person. I offered mentorship to folks who are interested, and I still do. I usually have some kind of conversation every couple months. And it's not just the social pressure, it's also something internal, something about how I see myself. Like before, there wasn't a default path, so it was hard for me to find my way. But now that I have this identity, it's like it's the only path that I can see. When you want to do something good, and there isn't a clear way to do it, it's hard. Feels like there should at least be somebody to tell you, just follow these 10 steps and then you'll be able to make a difference. So if you're searching for a path, and all you find is uncertainty, you're in good company. If you decide to continue on despite the uncertainty, if you surround yourself with the right people, take some risks, then maybe one day, in retrospect, everything will seem inevitable, like it was meant to be.